I just invite you to bow your heads. Let's pray as we open up God's Word to be equipped for His mission in the world. So Lord, we gather here and we just give you this time as we study your Word, Lord. We just invite you to continue to make your kingdom known to us so that we can know it and that we can understand it, we can experience it. Thank you, Lord, for our time of worship, our time to celebrate in community. Lord, continue to let us shine with your glory, Lord, in a contagious way to those that we encounter. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series, Illustrates. And Illustrate has been the studies that we have been in for a few weeks now, exploring and studying the parables, the often called the kingdom parables, or stories that Jesus taught to give us glimpses or peaks at what the kingdom of God looks like. Now, each of these kingdom parables by themselves is really just an incomplete picture. But the more we study all the parables, as we look at them all together, we begin to get this bigger glimpse, this bigger understanding and experience of what the kingdom is. And for that reason, we've been in this series, Illustrate, looking to get this fuller and more accurate picture of the kingdom of God. And and so for this series, we've been saying that Illustrate is our Sunday morning series exploring the parables Jesus used to illustrate for us the realities of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God so that we can embody what life in the kingdom should look like. Now, as we talk about the kingdom of God, one of the things that might happen in our minds is we begin to just kind of have this lofty and on kind of realistic viewpoint of it. And when we use words like kingdom, we automatically start to think of things that are kind of uppity and higher than us and away from us and out of our touch. Might think of it kind of like the royal wedding, this thing that uh, is out there. It's something we can't be part of, but we talk about it a lot and we're not really sure why. Sorry, I think I let my commentary in there a little bit. However, this is far from the truth of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, unlike the royal wedding, is something we can experience. It's something we can know. And so throughout this series, I've offered this definition to kingdom of, uh, what is the kingdom of God so that we have a kind of a shared understanding of what I'm talking about. And so when we talk about kingdom of God, we are talking about the rule and the reign of God manifesting itself in our everyday life. Now, that's an important foundation for this series. So I'm going to say it again. The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God manifesting itself in our everyday life. And before we go much further at this point in the series, I think it's really helpful for us to actually explore a little bit of what kingdom theology has looked like and wrestle with some of the theological realities of the kingdom of God. Now, automatically, when I said theology, some of you have checked your brains at the door and said, I'm trying to get to a picnic after this. I don't really need to talk about theology. But I think it's important for us to wrestle, just for a little bit, some of the theological understandings of the kingdom. The church has often struggled to understand what the kingdom of God is. And as you can imagine, there's been theological debates throughout time on this. And as a result, there's also been divisive splits uh, between theologians and church movements on this topic. And there's literally dozens of 
ways to read this, and we're not going to explore them this morning, but it's important for us to know that at the end of those polarized spectrums are really two camps. There's a camp that says, the kingdom is here and now, it's experienceable, it's all moral, it's all just things that happen here in our everyday lives. And then there's this other reality of people that say, the kingdom is still to come, there's not anything of it, it's just something that we're looking forward to with great hope. And so the, the spectrum there is called the here and now, or the realized, or sometimes I joke and call it the over-realized camp, where everything is just kind of experienced now. And then we have the yet-to-come people, who uh, often are called consistent eschatology, or kind of futuristic, or apocalyptic, or out of touch, as I will often nickname uh, that group as well. Now, eschatology is a funny word. It just literally means a study of how the end comes. The way the kingdom arrives, no matter where we put it on that spectrum, begins to automatically usher in the end times. So which is correct? Well, throughout the series, I've also been using this additional language that says that the kingdom of God is here and now and yet to come. It has been inaugurated, but not, what's the word I use? Consummated, right? It has been inaugurated, but it's not consummated. And whenever we see prophets talk about uh, kind of the arrival of the kingdom, they use language that says that uh, the times are pregnant. There are signs that the baby is coming, but it's not fully here yet. And so I've thrown in this language, both and kind of language, it's kind of thrown into the mix and maybe even a wrench into our understanding. The idea that Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom, but not fully yet consummated, it is often called inaugurated or inactive eschatology. Some of you enjoy, obviously, knowing these theological terms more than others. We do not have time to explore all of Jesus' teaching or the prophets on the kingdom of God, but if we did, if we sat down and studied each one of those, I think that we would agree that Jesus announced in his time that he inaugurated it, the kingdom is at hand, it's in your midst, I am announcing the kingdom is around you, and that he also talked about parts of it to come. When I come back, for now I'm sending you my helper. And so I think we cut to this place where we agree that it's been inaugurated, but it's not fully consummated. Now, however, I said, we in the church don't always understand this both and tension well. And the reality is that in the scriptures, it's not easy to understand either. In Matthew alone, if we would just look at Matthew and look at the language that Matthew uses to talk about the kingdom of God, he alone will use language that says that it's present, it's near, it's delayed, it's future. And that doesn't make understanding the reality of the kingdom easy for us as a church when even Matthew is using language that talks about it in this multi-dynamic context. Now, some of you, again, are saying, why is this important? This isn't a theological class. I'm trying to get to the hot dog cookout, right? I get that. But because of depending how we read these parables with the kingdom theology, it affects the way we live, and it also affects the way we understand what Jesus is doing with these parables. We've been looking at Matthew 13, and so far we've looked at the parable of the sower, which we get this futuristic viewpoint. It's talking about harvest. If we just look at the parable of the mustard seed, we get this idea that the kingdom is realized. The the, uh, mustard seed's already there. It's already grown. There's already birds flocking to its shade. But the parable of the weeds and what we are going to study this morning, the parable of the leaven, give us a deeper and more full idea of what's called inaugurated or enacted eschatology. Reading all of these parables in context helps us see a fuller image of the kingdom. 
Now, the second reason this is important to know is because this kind of confusion is exactly what's happening in Israel at the time that Jesus is telling his parables. There are uh, huge amounts of Jewish people who are waiting for Jesus to come back with triumphant entry. They think he's going to come back in force. And when he comes back, when the Messiah comes, it's going to be violent. He's going to overthrow our oppressors. He's going to silence them. And he is going to put Israel right back in the middle. And God is literally going to have a throne in Israel, just like he did with David. It's going to be the same physical thing that David had, a physical kingdom and a physical throne. And he's going to do it by force. But then there's these other Jews at the time, and that sounds more like futuristic eschatology, right? Then there's these other Jews at the time that kind of have the idea that we looked at last week, the cedars of Lebanon. They, they think that when, when the Messiah comes back, he's going to establish them as a nation that all the other nations depend on. And they are going to be central and protected. And so even in Israel at this time, there is this tension that is present on what it means when this kingdom comes that the prophets have talked about. So Jesus begins to tell them these parables that kind of help them understand the both ends of the kingdom. Now studying the both ends of the kingdom also kind of helps us know uh, how God is breaking into our everyday lives. Now, some of you who have grown up Anabaptist or Mennonite are probably wondering, well, what is it that we as Mennonites or Anabaptists have traditionally believed? What is it that we tend to swing on that pendulum? <coughs> and I get some of you are still thinking about the picnic. Anybody really have a picnic afternoon? Good. <laughs> so, you know, for the early on, as I can tell, as I've read, uh, Anabaptism, we've been all over the map. I mean, if you would study early Anabaptist theology, you have ones that are very legalistic, you have ones that are very fundamental, you have ones that are very progressive, you have guys picking up swords and trying to literally bring the kingdom of God, and then you have other ones that find everything to be very mystic. If we would just look at the most accepted kind of uh, and most level-headed Anabaptist, the most kind of respected trains of thought coming out of the movement, we would see what I think out of the most respective streams is this inaugurated eschatology. Michael Sattler, founder of the Anabaptist movement, addressed the kingdom and God in a document that he called How Scripture Should Be Read. And it's a great document if you haven't read it. And he looks at the life of John the Baptist and he says, this is our approach to scriptures, but it's also approach to life. We need to point to the kingdom of God as a way of living. And Sattler goes on to remark that the kingdom of God manifested in Jesus and can be seen by those who have experienced baptism of the water and of the Spirit. Now, Menno Simons, another leader in the Anabaptist movement, who we actually take our name off, and we can debate if that was actually a smart move or not to name ourselves after a man, but Menno Simons, another leader in the Anabaptist movement, does much more eschatological work on the kingdom of God And he talks about it in much of his writings. One of my favorite is, in his writing to the bride, he writes, Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, not the perishing kingdom of Assyria, Media, Macedonia, nor of Rome, but the kingdom of the saints. Now, I love this idea as he's writing to his movement that is being oppressed. Fear not. Don't worry about what those empires are doing. 
Jesus wants to give you his kingdom. And, and he even goes on in this uh, uh, writing that he does, Day of Grace, and he does this beautiful eschatological work in it. And it, it's this piece that holds attention between what he calls the day of fulfillment, the day of the inaugurated kingdom, and the day of grace, this era that's yet to come. And it, just listen to a few of his reflections through that document. Even as Christ says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. The time is fulfilled. That is, the promised day of grace approaches. The time is fulfilled. The predictions of the prophets and the promises of the fathers appear in their full power. He has declared the gospel of the kingdom. The word of his father he taught and left unto his followers, an example of pure love, Le, uh, yeah, love and an unblemished life. For Menno, we get this kind of clear view that the kingdom has been inaugurated. In fact, he promises, uh, he believes that the promises from the prophets have been uh, brought in full power. They've appeared in full power because, in his wording, Jesus has declared the gospel of the kingdom. Now, a more modern thinker in our Anabaptist movement, Donald Craybill, points out the kingdom is dynamic, always becoming, always spreading and growing. The kingdom points us not to a place of God, but to God's ruling activities. Remember, the kingdom of God is God's reign and rule. We see that here as well. It is not a kingdom in heaven, but from heaven, one that thrives where? In the here and the now. And lastly, we even confess it in our uh, kind of confession of faith in a Mennonite perspective. This inaugurated eschatology is something we believe together. We affirm that in Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection, the time of fulfillment has begun. Jesus proclaimed both the nearness of God's reign and its future's uh, realization, its healing and its judgment. In his life and teaching, he showed that God's reign included the poor, the outcast, the persecuted, those who were like children, and those with faith like a mustard seed. For this kingdom, God has appointed Jesus Christ as King and Lord, and we believe that the church is now called to live now according to the model of the future reign of God. Thus, we are given a foretaste of the kingdom of God that will one day establish in full. Folks, we are studying these kingdom parables. To know how to live into this kingdom. To know how to experience this kingdom that has been inaugurated. And how to live as a foretaste of what's yet to come. We get to give a sample, a bite-sized taste. Now I enjoy studying these kingdom parables because they teach us about the kingdom of God. And as we see to Jesus, the kingdom of God was central and essential. For that reason, it should be central and essential to us as well. We are living in the tension of the here and now and the yet to come. However, we know that Jesus gave us kingdom parables on how to see the kingdom of God. How to partner with it, how to experience it, and how to live as thriving kingdom citizens in the tension of the here and now and the yet to come. Is anybody else tired of the pollen already in this time of the year? <coughs> So this morning we pick up with Jesus right where we left him last week as he's telling parables, these parables, these stories to stretch our way of thinking and seeing the kingdom of God. Jesus has been staying with some disciples in the house. (coughs) 
He's been hanging out with them. The crowds have been kind of following him and sticking around with him ever since this whole Sermon on the Mount thing, which just happened a few miles away. And they decide that, hey, we want more. We're seeing the kingdom manifest with Jesus. We're ready to pick up arms and follow him. And so Jesus sees that the crowds are outside the door of this house, and he decides to head down to this beautiful inlet on the lake that lends itself to be a great natural amphitheater. It's even called the Cove of the Sower locally in this part of Israel, and it's just known as this place of great beauty and serenity. And Jesus pushes himself off in a small boat and uses it as a pulpit to begin to address the audience. Listen in as we begin to hear Jesus in what is often called the parable of the leaven. And we're going to be looking at Matthew 13, 33 through 35. In all these parables, we see that Jesus looks to explain how God's rule and reign will manifest itself in their everyday lives. And usually that was really different from the ways that they had expected. Listen to the way that Jesus begins to address in this parable their expectation that God was going to put in the middle of their midst a literal throne and kingdom that would mirror the very physical kingdom of David. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all its way through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophets. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Now, in this passage, literally, Matthew's commentary is longer than the parable itself. The parable itself is one sentence. But Matthew writes this additional few lines there explaining what Jesus is doing. Now, it's important to know that Matthew, more than any of the Gospels, is writing to a really legalistic kind of uh, Jewish group. And so he's longing to show the places where Jesus is literally fulfilling what the prophets promised that the Messiah would fulfill. This is why we see Matthew write, Jesus spoke all these things, right, to the crowd in the parables. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable. So it was fulfilled, what was was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. And you can hear Matthew showing his audience what Jesus is fulfilling. Despite their expectation, we might say that Matthew is telling his audience this. You thought this was the way of the coming of the presence of God's kingdom, but you're missing out that Jesus did fulfill his promise of his presence. It just looks like this instead of what you expected. He really did keep his word. Matthew illustrates for us the way the kingdom arrived and fulfilled what was promised of it. But there was also more to come. Now, Matthew is showing that Jesus filled this prophetic tune that shows up in Psalms, and it was well known by uh, the Jews of Jesus' time, and it was actually sung. And uh, So, my people hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from old things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. Now, Matthew is showing that Jesus is making those hidden things known, the mystery, the the mystery of God's kingdom. It means that his rule and reign of God would actually be present and accessible to us. It would permeate, if we can, the world in which we live in. 
Now, Jesus explains what he's doing to his followers in Matthew 13, 11 in this way. You are permitted to understand the secret, or some versions say the mystery, of the kingdom of God. But I use parables for everything that I say to outsiders. Parables help us kind of chew on what God is teaching us, these mysteries of the kingdoms. But they're also used to kind of blow up our expectations of times of what God is doing. I love how C.H. Dodd explains what a parable is, and it was in the video that we just watched. At its simplest, the parable is a metaphor, a simile drawn from the nature of common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or its strangeness, and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. I love this morning this idea of having your thoughts teased, right? As we wrestle with this parable, what it means to have our thoughts teased into active thought. And likewise, the kingdom of God, in the book, The Kingdom of God is Like, author Thomas Keating says, it is a characteristic of the parables to ask this question. What makes you think the world is the way you see it? I think this is important for us to wrestle with as we talk about the parable of the leaven. Just like Jesus with his first audience, sometimes Jesus tells a parable to offend our minds, to reveal what's in our hearts, and challenge us with the way that we see the world or his kingdom through our own lenses and experiences. The parables are one way of kind of separating what we believe from our experiences and our expectations. So throughout this parable of leaven, we have to pause and ask, what is it that Jesus is trying to illustrate for his audience? What's intent does he have on teaching us a mystery of the kingdom? What expectations is he causing us to wrestle with? Some of the questions that have often been asked by this little parable are, what is the relation of this parable to the mustard seed? Isn't leaven in the Bible always a negative symbol? Do any features, the woman or the dough, the amount of dough, have any significance? Does this story connect to when the Lord visited Abraham in the Old Testament and Sarah, who's a woman, actually uses the exact same amount of flour to prepare a meal for the day of the Lord? By speaking about a woman in the kitchen, is Jesus saying that women are going to be central to his kingdom? Is Jesus using a woman to describe himself, to describe mother attributes? Some have asked, is this kingdom, is this saying the kingdom is going to overtake the whole world and actually making an argument for universalism? Now, those questions have been explored throughout the years by many biblical thinkers, and you can get commentaries that will tell you every which way on those. And perhaps some of them were in your mind as well as you began to read the parable. Now, that's good because that's exactly what would have been happening in Jesus' audience as he told them this one sentence, they would have sat going, what is it that he is really trying to say? And should I be offended? Is that really what Jesus meant? And they would have been making these same kind of connections. Now, to answer what Jesus was illustrating, we really need to look at the idea of yeast in this package, this idea of the leaven. Now, for some of you, just like Jesus' audience, you're bakers. You make homemade bread. I love homemade bread. I'm not really good at making it. I try to rush things too quick, and it usually turns out pretty flat and disgusting looking, uh, even if I use a bread machine. And so for some of you, I realize that you may have no idea what Jesus is talking about. Jesus uses this illustration from common home life. 
In fact, it's something he probably watched his mother do in the kitchen time and time again. Leaven was a little piece of dough that was held over from a previous baking, and it was allowed to ferment. Leaven, as defined in a dictionary, says it's a substance, typically yeast, that is added to dough to make it ferment and rise. Leaven is small. It's an insignificant thing. But it really plays a big part in some yummy bread. I mean, I remember as a kid sitting on a Saturday, I'd wake up in my bed, and my mom would have bread rising in the window, and I'd love that smell. And that wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for the yeast. Now, when we knead yeast into the bread, you really have no idea it's there. It's small, it's insignificant, it's easily overlooked. However, as the bread bakes, its impact is greatly noticeable as the bread begins to take shape and rise. Now, that's what Jesus is using to explain the nature of his kingdom. Jesus says his kingdom is insignificant in its entry. It's easily overlooked. It's a small thing, but when it's needed into interaction or into action, it will permeate the world. Usually when Jesus talks about yeast, it's around this cultural symbol at the time that actually used yeast to describe sin. Often in the Bible when we talk about yeast or leaven, we see it's a symbol that is speaking or representing a little sin that has been unchecked or a trespass that has been let go, and it turns into a big and bad situation for all of eternity. Because of this cultural symbolism of yeast, Jews didn't have too high of a view of it. They avoided it in certain celebrations. Throughout the Old Testament, it's used to speak about pride, conceit, impurity, and more. Now, even if Jesus had in Greeks, non-Jews in his audience, they too would have been offended by Jesus using yeast to describe the kingdom because they had a belief that yeast represented corruption. So one of the famous gods at this time was, was Jupiter. And so whoever was named the priest of the Jupiter was not allowed to even touch flour or yeast because they thought it would corrupt them because flour and yeast was a symbol of corruption. So here's Jesus. And he's standing up in front of everyone as he's on his boat. And he uses a symbol despised by his whole audience to represent the kingdom of God. It's something they avoid in their celebrations. and something they symbolically associate with sin. And although it has been speculated by some, there is no reason to believe that Jesus is using leaven to speak about anything evil. Kyle Snodgrass addresses this in his book, Stories of Intent, as he writes. When leaven is used negatively, the context makes that clear, whether in Scripture or elsewhere. Nothing in this context suggests anything but a positive view. That's why when we look up the word leaven in the dictionary, we find this second definition as well. A pervasive influence that modifies something or transforms it for the better. That's the intent of what Jesus is getting at here. Now, one of my favorite quotes around the same idea is from Dodd, and he says, By analogy, it should be used here as a symbol for a wholesome influence, propagating itself similarly to a kind of infection. In that case, we should be obliged to suppose that when the kingdom of God is compared to leaven, the suggestion is that the ministry of Jesus is itself such an influence. Now, I love the idea that the rule and the reign of God is infecting our world. That slowly this unnoticeable thing is gaining entrance into our everyday life. And like a little yeast in dough, 
Though it's all noticeable, it will permeate the world. It's a kingdom working from the inside out. And that's exactly what we see Jesus talking about in Luke 17. Some Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. And his answer was, the kingdom of God does not come in such a way that can be seen. No one will say, look, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. It has already manifested in the life, the teaching, and the ministry of Jesus. It was in their midst. It was at hand. It was manifesting in everyday life, and it transformatively works from the inside out. But instead, the crowds were looking and expecting for something like a kingdom of David's. They were waiting for a kingdom that would come and overtake the world's kingdom and make itself known. They had missed the significantly insignificant presence that Jesus was slowly permeating in their world. For that reason, we must realize that this parable of the leaven that Jesus is using and talking about is strictly about the nature of the kingdom. We must not draw any other conclusions from the story. Jesus does not offer any extra commentary on it, neither has church history, onto much later with some more contemporary theologians. Leaven is not a negative force that is subverting the work of the kingdom. This isn't to be contrasted with the parable of the mustard seed. Any connection to the amount of flour used by Sarah seems to be a reach at best. Jesus is not comparing himself to the mother in this one, but he does in other parables. Seeing the woman as Mary, the church, or the synagogue, as many have, does nothing for its interpretation. And though our society needs to do a better valuation of women in ministry and leadership, I don't think that this parable is a basis for that discussion. There's no reason in either account, in either passage, or extra-biblical sources to argue that this is a parable speaking to the nature of universalism. This is speaking solely to the significantly insignificant nature in which the kingdom is slowly permeating itself in the world. George Eldon Ladd echoes this same point. It illustrates the truth that the kingdom of God may sometimes seem to be a small and significant thing. The world may despise and ignore it. What could a galleon carpenter and a dozen Jews accomplish? But do not be dismayed. The day will come when God's kingdom will fill all the earth, even as the leaven fills the whole bowl. God's purpose will not be frustrated. They were expecting that the presence of God would literally be with them. They wanted it with triumph and power. Instead, they found a carpenter with some ragtag guys speaking to power and committed to the proclamation of the kingdom of God and bearing witness to the deeds of the kingdom through healing, physical, emotional, and social, doing justice, delivering those that were held by evil. And despite their appearance, the presence of God showed up to manifest the rule and the reign of his kingdom in their everyday lives. They wanted grandeur, but they found a kingdom that was permeating slowly. Now, Jesus' followers in the crowds often wrestled with the reality of these parables. They struggled with them. They didn't like them. They made them uncomfortable. They constantly were asking Jesus, what did you mean by that? And you'd think that after a while they would get used to it. But right when Jesus is preparing to leave the earth, we see that they still are carrying this frustration after three years of not really understanding what Jesus is promising them. In John 16, we see Jesus kind of preparing himself to go home to the Father, and he's beginning to address them, and they're still hung up three years later on Jesus' not speaking literally to them and giving them these glimpses of the kingdom. 
I mean, they wanted this little presence. Why is it that they're getting this symbolism? Jesus tells them, I have spoken of these matters in figures of speech, but soon I will stop speaking figuratively and will tell you plainly about the Father. Then you ask in my name, and I'm not saying I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you dearly because you love me and because I came from the Lord. Yes, I came from the Father into the world, and now I will leave the world and return to the Father. Then a disciple say, at last, you're speaking plainly and not figuratively. Finally, you're shooting straight with us. We're tired of the parables. We're tired of the roundabouts. Now we understand that you know everything and there's no need to question you. From this, we believe that you came from God. Now you notice a little frustration in Jesus and his response. He says, do you finally believe? But the time is coming and indeed it's here, now. The kingdom is here and now when you will be scattered and each one is going his own way, leaving me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me and I have told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. The literal presence of the Father was permeated itself in the world around them. It was coming with power, but even his followers constantly were overlooking it. Jesus is frustrated. Do you finally get it? Finally. My kingdom is here. Surrender yourself to it. And when you're committed to the proclamation of the kingdom of God and bearing witness to the deeds of the kingdom to the ends of the earth, when you are committed to bearing witness through physical, emotional healing, as well as doing justice and delivering those help captive by evil, then take heart because my presence, that thing you've been looking for the whole time, is here. It's here. You don't have to wait for it. The presence of my kingdom will be with you. The Holy Spirit will be with you. Take heart. That thing the prophets promised you is here. The kingdom of God is probably one of the most important aspects of Jesus' message. The rule and reign of God manifesting in everyday life, inaugurated by the teaching and ministry of Jesus, has changed history. I want to highlight just a few notes that we can take away from this parable, and you'll find those on the flip side of your bulletin. First, God's kingdom is not one of victorious triumph, but of permeating presence. It's not one of triumph, but of permeating presence. In a world desiring supremacy, supremacy, a permeating presence is barely discernible. It's easily overlooked. We can barely see something little happening because we're always wanting something big to happen. Though significantly insignificant, the kingdom of God is a hidden power already transforming and irresistibly at work. It is there. It is being needed into the bread. The world is being permeated with the kingdom. And God's desire to make his kingdom's hidden power and presence known. He desires it. He didn't want them to constantly be waiting for David's literal throne, which will come in its time. He was really wanting them to understand the power and to make it known and his presence known. And today, the same thing. Jesus longs for us to know the power and the presence of the Father. The plans of God will not be frustrated. We can confidently wait for a day where the kingdom will fill the whole earth as leaven fills the dough. 
Those of faith are called to proclaim and live dynamically with the same kingdom-influenced, permeating presence. It's not just something Jesus did, but he told these parables so that we know how to live in between the here and now and the yet to come. We are called to mirror that same permeating presence. We often uh, think we have to take up arms or fight for politics or have the biggest church event ever to get God's kingdom out there. But that is not what Jesus did, and it's not what he desires of us either. And lastly, we take heart because God's presence is discernible for us. As Michael Sattler said, you know, those who have been baptized by both spirit and water are able to see the kingdom of God manifested in Jesus. We take heart because God's presence is discernible for us, and it's bigger than any situation that we may encounter. Do you finally believe now that I'm shooting straight with you? My presence, that thing you wanted, is there. In closing, I share this final story. I love moments in which followers of Jesus get this, that they've actually got what it means to be about the kingdom. For that reason, I love being a student of revivals. I love when uh, I watch somebody uh, praying for the Holy Spirit to come in revival, and it breaks out, and thousands begin to witness the rule and the reign of God. And likewise, I love when kind of these insignificant Christians in history have changed the outcome of something because of their dedication to the gospel message. The story I'm sharing this morning is one of the latter. In 165 AD, in the reign of Marcus Aurelius, a devastating epidemic swept through the Roman Empire. The mortality was so high that Marcus wrote that there were caravans and carts and wagons hauling the dead from our cities. In all, this plague would go on for 15 years. A quarter of the empire's population would be killed. 